This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 12, February the 15th, 1982. I want to thank those of you who have written to me and made suggestions about subjects to cover. One of you sent in a clipping about bankruptcies in the United States, and I'd like to comment very briefly on that. The article states, and I quote, the vast number of personal bankruptcy cases filed these days is a national disgrace. In the first nine months of 1981, there were 339,39500 personal bankruptcy actions filed nationwide. It's getting so filing for bankruptcy is about as common as filing for divorce and carries about the same stigma. Much of the increase can be attributed to double-digit inflation, credit card abuse, unemployment, and other problems brought on by recession. But primary blame can be laid to the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978, which makes it comparatively easy for individuals to escape responsibility for their debts." Now there's no question that both personal and corporate bankruptcies are increasing at a phenomenal rate. There have been several excellent articles lately, including this one, about these bankruptcies, but all these articles overlook one critical fact, partly because the press by and large comments on the obvious. When a man files for bankruptcy, he not only represents a personal failure, but he takes others in his wake. For example, Supposing a man has a legitimate debt which he recently contracted with someone for about a hundred thousand, and I'm thinking of an actual case. He files for bankruptcy. Now the person to whom that money is owed is very often a person who very much needs that money. And suddenly the monthly payments are no longer forthcoming. Because the bankruptcy courts are so clogged, it seems to take forever, almost a lifetime, before that problem is unraveled. As a result, what happens in the wake of a bankruptcy is often far more revealing as to the consequences for the economy than the personal bankruptcy or the corporate bankruptcy. Because the bankruptcy, in this case, according to the article, in the first nine months of 1981, 339,39500 personal bankruptcies. Those personal bankruptcies must have affected two or three million people easily. People to whom money was owed. In some instances, those debts were contracted not too long before bankruptcy was filed. Now, that's 
a consequence of bankruptcy that we do not hear about in the press, and it's perhaps the most important consequence. Now to an entirely different matter. Years ago, when I was much younger, I dutifully read, and I still have the book on my shelf, Einstein's original book on the theory of relativity. Don't ask me what he said, because the book was pretty well over my head. However, I recently, in fact this noon, when I was doing some browsing after lunch, uh, encountered a definition of relativity given by Einstein himself. And here it's all clear. So don't ever complain that you have any trouble understanding relativity because we have it here from Einstein himself. And I quote, when a man sits for an hour with a pretty girl on his knee, it seems like a minute. But let him sit on a hot stove for a minute, and it's longer than an hour. That's relativity. Unquote. <laughs> well, that uh, now makes you a scientific uh, savant, because you understand Einstein's explanation. I'd like to while I'm with Einstein, give you um, his account of how things are sometimes misunderstood by definition. He said, and I quote, I was once walking in the country on a hot day with a blind friend and remarked that I would like a cold drink of milk. I understand drink, said my friend, but what is milk? A white liquid, I replied. I know liquid, but what is white? The same color as a swan's feathers. I know feathers, but what is a swan? A bird with a crooked neck. I know neck, but what is crooked? I lost my patience. I seized his arm and straightened it. Then I bent it at the elbow and said, That is crooked. Ah, said my blind companion, Now I know what you mean by milk. Unquote. <laughs> <laughs> Einstein obviously had a sense of humor. Before we go on a little more uh, on a light vein, from John Quincy Adams, one of our very interesting early presidents. And in his memoirs, he wrote uh, on this note, in a kind of a diary. Philadelphia, October 12, 1818. We dined and spent the evening at Mr. W. Jones's, the president of the Bank of the United States. I was not satisfied with myself this day, having talked too much at dinner. I never take a large share in conversation without saying things which I afterwards wish were unsaid. Yet in the estimation of others I pass off, on the whole, better when I talk freely than when silent and reserved. This sometimes stimulates me to talk more than is wise or proper, and to give to the conversation of mixed companies a tone of discussion which becomes irksome and tedious. Nor can I always, 
I did not this day altogether avoid a dogmatical and peremptory tone and manner, always disgusting, and especially offensive in persons to whose age or situation others consider some deference due. Unquote. Well, there are a few of us, I trust, who have not felt like John Quincy Adams at one time or another. Something else I liked as I was reading John Quincy Adams was his address of July 4th, 1821. It is a very critical um, comment on the uh, British Empire. He compares Britain and its imperialism to the United States, and he concludes by saying, and I quote, America's glory is not dominion but liberty. Her march is the march of the mind. She has a spear and a shield, but the motto upon her shield is freedom, independence, peace. This has been her declaration. This has been as far as her necessary intercourse with the rest of mankind would permit her practice, unquote. God grant that it may again be the case and that our practice and our life may be one of a dedication to liberty. Now to a more serious subject, dealing just very briefly with a recently published book, Erwin Schiff, S-C-H-I-F-F, How Anyone Can Stop Paying Income Taxes, with, written with Howie Merzin. Now, before you uh, decide that I have joined the tax revolt, let me say I don't agree with Schiff. This was published by Freedom Books in Hamden, Hamden, H-A-M-D-E-N, Connecticut, in 1982. And Freedom Books are uh, located at P.O. Box 5303, Hamden, Connecticut, 06518, in case you're interested. The book is priced at 10.95. However, I definitely am against the tax revolt, which Schiff is a major champion of. Schiff is a very intelligent and a superior man. He wrote an excellent book a few years ago entitled The Biggest Con, How the Government is Policing You. And I'm dealing with it because uh, I, I regard Schiff as a man to take very seriously. He's a fighter. He is not afraid to put his life and his future on the line in terms of what he believes. In this book, what he uh, tries to do, and I think makes a fairly good case, is to show how we can legally stop paying income taxes. By legally, he means according to law, in terms of acts of Congress, court decisions, IRS regulations, and so on, and his thesis is that the 
Income tax is voluntary in nature. Uh, to be otherwise, it would violate the uh, constitutional prohibition of slavery or involuntary servitude, which is what is compelled of us when we are compelled to keep records for the federal government withholding taxes, do the accounting, and so on. Now, very clearly, uh, Schiff lines up some persuasive legal decisions and the like, and has some legal victories to show for his thesis. But I think there's a serious fallacy in the entire tax revolt movement. First, let me call attention to something I wrote in one of the early uh, journals of Christian Reconstruction, which is still in print and available. It was on Jesus and the tax revolt. And I went there into the fact that Jesus had to deal with the tax revolt in Judea. The people of the day were against paying taxes to a very unpopular authority, the Roman government. And so Jesus had to deal with the tax revolt issue and did very tellingly. He was against it. Now, the second point I'd like to make with regard to Schiff's argument is that he is relying on the law, on court decisions, on IRS regulations and the like, and there is nothing more dangerous to rely on than the law because the Constitution today does not mean very much. It is a pretext a pretext used by the courts in a variety of ways to accomplish what they want to accomplish in the way of social legislation. A very interesting book just uh, being published now by Oxford University Press in New York. Um, there mail order address is 16-00 Pollitt, P as in Paul, O-L-L-I-T-T -T Drive, Fair Lawn, F-A-I-R-L-A-W-N, New Jersey, 07410. The book will not officially be published until April, and it will then be published for $15.95. But the book is very important. The title, by the way, is The Brandeis-Frankfurter Connection, The Secret Political Activities of Two Supreme Court Justices. The author is Bruce Allen Murphy, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Pennsylvania State University. Uh, Dr. Murphy, in 1976, discovered 300 never-before-published letters from Brandeis to Frankfurter. These letters were written when uh, Frankfurter was still a professor of law at Harvard. And they reveal a very, very uh, interesting kind of operation by the Supreme Court. 
to quote from the second hundred days of the New Deal on nearly every major piece of legislation proposed by Roosevelt was conceived or influenced or sabotaged by Brandeis lobbied for by Frankfurter drafted by their allies including the most important legal drafting team in American history Thomas Corcoran and Ben Cohen unquote now many Supreme Court decisions were written by this means let me quote inside information on Supreme Court activities provided by Brandeis served as the basis for much research conducted by Frankfurter's best Harvard students which would then appear in the Harvard Law Review and be cited by Brandeis in his decisions used to lobby his colleagues on the court and to instigate judicial reform in the legislature unquote well so much for the integrity of the law the law was manufactured a popular sentiment created or legal supposedly legal data manufactured by the research factory at Harvard uh, Law School and this on orders secretly from Brandeis to Frankfurter with Corcoran and others in on this entire business of manufacturing new laws with supposedly solid legal foundations now given the nature of American law today we can hardly depend on the law a lawyer must do so he has to go into court today with uh, massive legal support from the mouths of the judges themselves in order to hold the line on what the law currently says and even then he cannot be sure of the decision so under the circumstances to be uh, constitutional fundamentalists as men like Schiff are and the tax revolt people are and saying this is what the Constitution says and this is what the court says as though they're bound by it is ridiculous I can't see it at all now hopefully someday we may take a more responsible re attitude towards law in our courts and in the public at large but until then uh, it's very unwise to uh, depend on the law there are many interesting little tidbits uh, in Schiff's book this little item uh, tickled me he said that for the last four years he has made his checks out w using a non reproducible pen the type used by artists making advertising layouts and this specialty ink usually cannot be picked up by photocopiers and bank microfilm equipment so if you use these pens and the IRS gains access to your bank records apart from your bank statement they'll only get blank checks to look at while you of course will still have the legible origins originals should you need them 
This non-reproducible ink is a peacock blue, and I recommend that it be used on blue-green checks. Unquote. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're not going to change the country with uh, disappearing ink or anything like that. It's going to take a change in the hearts of the people. I have a high respect for Irwin Schiff. I think he's a very brilliant and talented man. I wish he could see that the issues are far deeper than what he thinks they are. I do agree with him that the 16th Amendment and the income tax constitute a major evil. But the real evil lies deeper. It is envy in the hearts of men. Envy which led men to say, we're going to soak the rich. And whenever you try to do something to others, ultimately in God's universe it comes back at you. And so, so today the people who with envy created that are now being hard hit. However, one interesting a fact in Schiff's book, and there are a number of very interesting points, but this, I think, is one that uh, we tend to forget. We look back on history and see only the lack of technology comparably in times past, and therefore feel that everything that then existed was just horrible. Now, serfdom was a very real and, in some respects, an ugly fact. However, we must not uh, overrate it. It also meant protection from serfs, for the serfs, the peasantry. It had its pros and its cons, and that's why it lasted so long. Actually, the worst era of serfdom was in the late Middle Ages to the 19th century. In other words, when there came a decline in the life of the church in the later Middle Ages, there was also a decline in the life of the people, and serfdom became much more ugly as a result. And slavery and serfdom, and there is a difference between the two, but they are related, began to flourish in Western civilization. As a matter of fact, serfdom only came into uh, Russia about the same time in the modern era. Old Russia had its problems with the Mongols and with other things, but they did not have serfdom. The peasantry owned their own lands and were free. Moreover, when we talk about slavery today, we think about the Negroes, which is not justifiable. In many respects, black slavery in the United States was not as difficult a lot as serfdom was in Europe at the comparable time. And by the way, slavery persisted in some parts of Europe almost to the same time. Into the early 1800s, there was still slavery in Tuscany. On top of that, a lot of many of the serfs in uh, 
Europe was far, far more degrading and uh, evil than that of the Negro slaves in this country. So bad as slavery was and unbiblical as it was, we must recognize that when we look at our past as though we were singularly evil among the nations, we are distorting history seriously. The fact of serfdom in some portions of Europe was so bad that vast numbers of children were abandoned by parents who had no will to live, had no desire to have their children live. They were left at foundling homes where they died for the most part. It was an era of a horrible hopelessness. Well, Schiff makes an interesting point. He says, if the serfs during the Middle Ages turned over 25% of their productivity to their lords, what does that make current Americans who now pay better than 40% of their productivity to their lord government? Is America truly the land of the free and the home of the brave? Or has it become rather the land of the indentured and the home of the meek? Taxation is one thing, but what we now have in America is the illegal confiscation of wealth in the guise of lawful taxation. Now that point is thoroughly valid. It's an excellent point. It's easy to look back and say that because the serfs didn't have the technology we have, therefore their lot was a horrible one. But they paid a lesser portion of their income to their lords than we now pay to civil government. So we can hardly call ourselves free and the serfs unfree. As a matter of fact, what we need to recognize is that slavery is today more prevalent than it ever was before in history. All you have to do is to look at the Iron Curtain countries, the slave labor camps, and the like. Moreover, what we need to recognize is that as the courts have interpreted it, the Constitution and its prohibition by amendment of slavery only forbade private slavery, the private ownership of slaves. Throughout history, a very high percentage of slavery has been the state ownership of people. And that has consistently been the worst. When there have been private owners, they have been sometimes very evil, and sometimes from antiquity to the present, they have regarded the slaves as lesser members of the family and been often very gracious to them very courteous, very thoughtful. So it has been both beneficent at times and evil at other times. But whenever you have had the state ownership of people, state-operated slavery, it has been inhuman, 
impersonal and consistently evil. Now, today, this is the most prevalent thing in the world. In much of the world, living under Marxist tyranny, the people are slaves. Increasingly, in the so-called democracies, people are increasingly slaves, paying more of their income to the slave master than the serf ever did, increasingly regulated in everything they do. Across the road from me, there's a rancher who cannot cut trees, including dead trees, from one of his properties, which is up higher in the mountains and surrounded by national forest, unless he gets a permit. That's to cut trees on his own property, dead or dying trees. He cannot haul them to his place here to sell them as firewood without a permit. He has to show in his records every sale he makes so that if I go there and buy a cord of wood, I have to give him the money and take a receipt. He has to make out a receipt. Now, this is a kind of regulation we have, and it isn't as bad as in uh, some states. I know... A friend in Virginia who found that he could not cut a branch from a tree that was dead, the branch, or cut down a dead tree without a permit from the county. Is that freedom? This is the kind of thing that is routinely commonplace. It is a form of slavery. So, in that respect, we have to say, yes, the income tax is evil. But the evil lies deeper than the tax protest movement realizes. Karl Marx favored the tax revolt. He was the great modern exponent of it. His reason for favoring it was because he wanted to disrupt society. He wanted to create a tremendous breakdown in civil government in order to pave the way for revolution. Now that's all a tax movement can do. It can be disruptive and destructive. It takes a different view of life, uh, an essentially religious perspective, to create a new social order. And it is this that is lacking in the tax revolt movement. Well, I got uh, a little wound up on that subject, but it's one I feel rather strongly about. It is uh, 
a sad fact that in our times so very, very many books have been written about slavery, especially since the Civil Rights Movement began. I think I must have picked up a dozen or two of these books. They do contain a great many interesting pieces of information, but what they lack is basically an overall perspective on the subject. Moreover, an important fact that they overlook is this, that slavery unhappily, and one or two of them, like Milton Meltzer, do recognize it, although uh, what Meltzer does is simply to comment on this and drop it as uh, not too nice an idea. It is this. Slavery developed as civilization developed. Now, it was not necessarily so, we can very definitely say, because the Bible certainly lays down the foundations for something very different, and what the Bible regards as the necessary order is different. In the Old Testament, while the word slavery is used, it really means bond servant. No Hebrew could enslave another Hebrew. He could be a bond servant for a period of six years, but then he had to be released on the sabbatical year. A foreigner who was not a believer could be bought and held as a slave beyond the six years. However, the foreigner, if he became a believer, had to be freed. And uh, naturally, <laughs> under the circumstances, they did become believers. This fact continued uh, through the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. It accounts for a very, very large percentage of uh, the people who are called Jews in the modern world, in Europe. Physiological studies, blood type studies, and all have shown that uh, there isn't any distinction between English Jews and Englishmen, German Jews and Germans, French Jews and Frenchmen. They are physiologically the same. And the reason is that... Um, when much of Europe was still peopled by barbarians, the Jewish settlers and merchants were far advanced culturally. They did acquire slaves. These slaves very quickly were converted. And as a result, they were freed. It was extremely rare throughout the Middle Ages for a Jewish slave to be a slave for life because in most cases they converted. And then they were freed and were members of the Jewish community. But apart from that, in most cultures, slavery provided the technology. 
the kind of construction work that required many employees, uh, the kind of living that meant living in some luxury and convenience. The average American has the equivalent today of about 350 or more slaves. This is why we live so much better than people did, let us say, a thousand years ago. Now, it was not the advance of humanitarianism or some special insight that uh, the church developed that abolished slavery. People had known generation after generation that slavery was evil. More than a few reformers called attention to that. Certainly, all through the centuries, people had the biblical law and what it had to say on the subject before them. But they preferred the kind of living that slavery provided until the rise of technology made slavery obsolete. And the personal ownership of slavery disappeared. What has replaced it is the state ownership. And the state does not move in terms of efficiency, in terms of productivity. And so it can perpetuate an obsolete system. Now, morally, slavery was always obsolete. Technologically, slavery became obsolete in the last century. But obsolescence, inefficiency, corruption, this sort of thing, mean nothing to the state. The state is not an agency that moves in terms of these factors. And so you have the revival of slavery by the modern state. Uh, speaking of the inefficiency and the stupidity of uh, bureaucracies and civil governments, I like the comment made by a recent writer dealing with the breakdown of our money he commented on the devastation wrought to money by Washington in recent years. And then in a passing sentence, he said, we cannot lay the blame on a conspiracy within the government, nor to the trilateralists or anyone else, because to ascribe a conscientious, developed, and working conspiracy to them is to ascribe more intelligence to them than they possess. We are dealing in these people with stupidity more than conspiracy. Now I'd like to turn to something very different. We today have seen a dramatic shift in a generation, in our education, in our view of the past, and in the men we remember and honor in our past. 
George Washington is no longer the central figure in our history. In fact, I can only describe the view of Washington I have encountered repeatedly among public school teachers who teach history as pornographic. Their hatred for him is insane and unreasoning. Patrick Henry is virtually gone. We're not alone in this. In one country after another, the great men of the past are being forgotten. History is being rewritten. What 1984 described is actually taking place and has taken taken place. Doublethink, Newspeak, the rewriting of history, and much, much more. This is why I want to talk for a while now on a book that came out, published in England in 1934. The author was Roger Versell, the title Bertrand of Brittany. Now Bertrand of Brittany is largely forgotten today, but he was once one of the very great men of France honored over the generations as perhaps the creator uh, and the missionary he has been called of national consciousness. He was very important in that much earlier than Joan of Arc, he laid the foundations for what she later did, and her work was brief and his was a lifetime. He beat off the English threat, came very close to destroying it forever, and was in many respects one of the most remarkable men of history. And yet his was a very, very strange history. He was born in 1320. He was born into a noble family the firstborn, but he was a monster in appearance. The lady, his mother, a beautiful blonde Norman mother, his father, a Breton, found him repulsive to look at. His own mother refused to look at him again for a full three months. When she brought herself to look at her firstborn again in the care of a wet nurse, she uttered a cry of horror. He's a monster. She went into hysterics and insisted that it could not be her son, that she could never have brought such an ugly creature into the world. She tried to tell herself that uh, a wet nurse had exchanged one of her own children for Bertrand. It's a miracle that he lived. He was despised by his parents as other children were born. 
he was pushed further into the background. He was not even allowed to eat at the same table with his father and mother, his brothers and sisters. They found him too repulsive to look at. He was allowed to sit in a dark corner and the scraps that were left over from the plates of the rest of the family were brought to him at the end of the meal. They were hoping he would die. Certainly they did everything to ensure his death. But he survived. And he survived in spite of hearing his mother in hysterics whenever he was too obvious on the, s the scene. Scream, would to God he were dead. The turning point in his life came when a nun called to visit her mother. This nun was something of an herbalist. She was a converted Jewess. And she saw the animal-like little monster in the corner. She went up to him to be nice to him, and he used only to beatings and to insults, snarled at her, and ran off. While his mother cried out that it was a waste of time to talk to anyone like that monster, and that his father and I wish he were dead and buried. Bertrand heard that. But the nun made a prophecy then and there, something she was not in the habit of doing, that this boy would surpass the fame of all his ancestors, that France would heap honors upon him, that he would be talked of all over Europe and as far as Jerusalem. And she then concluded with intensity, if all this does not come true, you may have me shamefully burned at the stake. That nun's conviction shook the mother so that from that time on Bertrand was treated indeed as the eldest son. He was, as I recall, about eleven at the time. Although something of a monster, he was incredibly strong. Earlier, before the nun arrived, it sometimes took three or four servants to hold him down and carry him out when the family did not want him around. 
to her dying day, the mother could not say a good word for him. But fearful of the nun's prophecy, she allowed him to be treated as the eldest son so that he was now tolerated at best. When she died, by the way, his mother left something in her will for all the children except Bertrand. She could never accept the fact that this child had come out of her, and the father was not much better. Well, very early, he began to show his ability. He was given some education, but as a semi-prisoner. In fact, he was in the turret of the castle from the age of 11 to 16. He was no longer to be treated as someone to leave scraps to and hope he would die, but he was no one to parade in public. Well, at this time, France was in a fearful state. The old order of chivalry was dead. Religious faith was declining. The people were becoming barbarians by choice, even as we are today in our cities. Where a generation ago, the grandparents of the hoodlums today were God-fearing and well-behaved people. Today, their children and grandchildren are moral monsters and hoodlums. That same kind of thing was happening then. Let me read to you something of the life of the day. This is the year 1361, and Vercel comments, the names and the details of this chapter belong to history, not to melodrama. We have very extensive documentation. In a fortified castle in Normandy, The whole area now is under periodic control by various forces. At one time, the French, another time, the English. There is not much difference between the two. They regard the common people as nothing, and they treat them savagely. They wrote about what they did with delight. Now this is Purcell. A monk, his face ravaged with sorrow, crosses the busy yard. On seeing him, an archer on duty steps forward, bringing his weapon to attention. 
Last week, they plundered a convent, rolled copes, tapestries, and chasubles into bundles, drank from the jeweled chalices, and carried off heavy reliquaries and monstrances of fine gold. They drove the monks into the forest with pikes, ripped open those who lagged, but kept this old one to sing mass for them on Sunday, for the company is religious on occasion. Friend of God, enemy of the whole world, says the captain. Thus it is that they keep in the north tower the abbess of a neighboring nunnery and a few nuns. Everything is well managed, too, and as the brigands are no great scholars, the monk keeps the books, draws up the balance sheet of weekly gains, writes out the safe conduct, parchments that are worth much when the peasants have to pay for them. Then he describes a great deal more the hour for the daily rape of the nuns. On the upper floor, another door is opened. There is a woman tied to a ring riveted in the wall. This stout peasant woman, Margaret the Mobcat, whose firm flesh is delightful to take hold of, has a mania for running away to join her husband and child hidden in the forest. Twice she has been recaptured. This third time she will be put to death. Vercel reminds us again that this is all documented. There were people who could write like this monk, and no one among the knights, so-called, who could read. Behind the next door, children are crying, some ten-year-old urchins who have been captured because the captain wanted pages. So that they would apply themselves to the study of fine manners, they were made to line up yesterday around a bread bin. It was opened. One of the little lads was thrust inside with a mad cat. It was closed again. The others stayed there until no more cries could be heard, only caterwaulings until blood running out through the badly joined bottom of the chest stained the flagstone. Afterward, the bin was opened and they were made to bend over the red eyeless corpse while the beast sprang at their faces. Education. The patrol goes down. Here are a few peasants who, because they would not pay willingly, have had lips or nose or fists cut off. Strapped to their hands are copper pots and riveted to their feet kettles. Thus they cannot move without causing a clatter, an ingenious precaution which considerably simplifies their supervision. Naturally, in this situation, the peasants were heading for the forest, trying to escape captures. And then they were hunted down like beasts. Those who were captured, and I quote, are leashed to the end of tethers that are smeared with blood because there has been a little galloping on the way. Others are loaded on the horses, their feet tightly, tightly strapped under the animals' bellies. 
There are also a few women thrown over the saddles, and as they have been molested a little on the way, their garments are torn, and they are almost naked. But now at the sound of the cavalcade, there appears on the staircase of honor a lady with whose high headdress, topped with lace, crowns the most skillful edifice of hair that could be admired at the court of Edward III in England. All pink with rouge, she trips up to the noble captain, whose expression, hardened by contempt, remains unchanged. She is the distinguished wife of the master. She has come from London. She loves the captain as the noble lady Isabel de Juliers, niece of the Queen of England, loved Eustache de Abercourt for his fine exploits. The brigands have dismounted. The peasants tied hand and foot are lined up against the wall, and the game begins, a game of massacre. The good archers have seized stones and are throwing them with precision and force. The object is to break as many teeth as possible at one throw. They are counted by turning back the mangled lips. Thin thumbs are pinched, too, with small coals. The screams cannot rise above the laughter. Other peasants are sewn head down into the bottom of a sack, which is hung on a peg. The jerk of the sack is very funny, and the lady laughs. Well, there's much, much more of that, although... When you get to Spain later and encounter Pedro the Cruel, you realize how far until 20th century Marxism in humanity could go. Bertrand took to the forest with a few young men. He organized the peasants. He created them into a fine army that beat back the English again and again. His men never molested any of the peasants or their womenfolk, and hence no one ever betrayed them. This was as a boy of 16 that he accomplished this. His fame grew so that he was made Marshal of France by the King of France. His one grief was that when he had a formal army, he could not control their depredations as he could his boys and peasants in the forest. They were moral and well-behaved as they fought, but not so the armies. Again and again he destroyed the English forces. His Spanish campaign was a remarkable success. One thing about Bertrand, he had a beautiful voice so that as he spoke, his ugliness seemed to disappear. He married a very beautiful woman who saw his greatness. But he was sometimes home only a month or so. In three years' time, because he was continually on the battlefield for France, he had no children. His wife died in his absence. 
He married again. He died childless. He was buried with the kings of France at Saint-Denis, where Charlemagne was originally buried. He was a deeply religious man. His dedication to France was so great that when France did not provide the funds for financing his armies, he stripped himself of his wealth, went to his wife and begged for and took her jewels and pawned them so that he might be able to furnish an army. He was a very great man. One of the great men of European history. But Bertrand of Brittany is now forgotten. We rewrite history. And what Bertrand represented, the sense of honor, the faith, and all are today no longer respected. Moreover, Bertrand is the antithesis of modern thinking because he should have been warped mentally as he was physically. But he was not. And today we expect them to be warped. But Bertrand, a man of tremendous moral and physical strength, a man of incredible gentleness in an age of barbarism and savagery, self-created barbarism because men were departing from the faith, stands out as a witness to what someone who had the most incredibly evil treatment as a child from his own parents could still become. Well, our time is virtually ended. I've enjoyed this again. I like to share these things with you, and I hope you too have enjoyed what I've had to say, and that sometime you'll look up Vercel's book, Bertrand of Brittany, in a library. Perhaps there are still a few copies that have been left on the shelves. Good books like this tend to be destroyed. And you'll enjoy reading about that man. Thank you and goodbye.